You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 276, Mutiny in the Continental Army. Now this week, we're going to take a look at one of the darkest hours of the American Revolution. I've spoken before about the miserable neglect and living conditions of the soldiers throughout most of their enlistments, but especially during winter encampments. Over the winter of 1780-81, most of the attention was going to Nathaniel Greene's efforts to recover control of the southern states. Now, even Greene could not get the food and equipment he needed for his soldiers in the field. Up north, the Continental Army remained in a stalemate. General Washington could not get enough men together to make a credible attack on the British in New York. He continued to beg Congress and the states for food, uniforms, and munitions so that his army could do more than slowly starve and rot away. Many of the men had to share clothing in order to go outside, as their clothes had long worn out and fallen apart. They did not receive enough food to survive, and many showed signs of long-term malnutrition. It was no surprise that men who had sacrificed years of suffering for the cause felt like they were being ignored and their efforts unappreciated by a civilian population. Washington had only five or 6,000 men under his command during the winter encampment. To help spread out the logistical needs of his army, he kept about half of the army up around New Windsor, New York, just a few miles upriver from West Point. Most of these forces were from New England. The other half of the army was camped in and around Morristown, New Jersey, and these were soldiers mostly from the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines. The senior officer at Morristown was General Anthony Wayne. Now, New Year's Day, 1781, was treated as a holiday. General and Mrs. Washington received visitors at his temporary headquarters. The officers organized parties for themselves. The enlisted men were released from drill and most other regular duties, and they received a half pint of rum or other liquor to celebrate the new year. Many soldiers, however, were not in a celebratory mood. The lack of adequate food, clothing, and shelter was nothing new. But the new year also brought another point of contention. Most of the army had signed up for long-term enlistments at Valley Forge over the winter of 1777-78. to These enlistments were for three years or the duration of the war. Most men interpreted that as meaning that they would serve for the duration, unless the war lasted more than three years, in which case their enlistment would be done at the end of those three years. Congress, however, decided to interpret the enlistments as meaning that they would serve for the duration of the war no matter how long that was, and that if the war ended early, they could still be held in service for up to three years. On top of that, many soldiers had not received their promised enlistment bonuses from when they had enlisted years earlier, nor the pay they were supposed to receive, meager as it was. At the same time, 
new enlistees were receiving $27 in silver as well as a promise of 200 acres of land when the war ended. It was only through those generous benefits that Congress could attract any new men to enlist. The men who had fought for years, though, were not offered anything comparable. Now, many of those who had served for more than three years felt that they had done their part for the effort and were ready to go home. Some of them were still willing to fight for the cause, but they believed they had the right to re-enlist and to receive the same signing benefits that new enlistees were receiving. The men had taken up these issues with their officers, who had passed along the complaints up the chain of command. As commander, Washington had received these complaints and repeatedly warned Congress and the states that leaders needed to offer something to these men who continued to sacrifice so much on behalf of their country. Congress and the states offered almost nothing. Instead, they continued to put off the issue, citing lack of resources. Unlike the modern U.S. Army, the Continental Army tended to keep its regiments grouped by state and locality. The Pennsylvania line consisted of recruits from Pennsylvania, which had provided 13 regiments to the Army. Over the years, though, these regiments had shrunk to the point where they were considered hollow, in other words, not enough men to constitute a real regiment. So, in 1780, officials decided to consolidate the line into just six regiments, and that consolidation was also supposed to take place starting on January 1st. On New Year's Day, the men of the Pennsylvania line gathered to drink and discuss their problems. Their officers were mostly off attending parties, leaving the men to themselves. Since their officers had been unable to address their grievances for years, the soldiers decided that they needed to take up the issue directly with government officials. They would abandon their officers, march to Philadelphia, and take up their concerns directly with the Continental Congress and the Pennsylvania state government. The men agreed to follow the authority of non-commissioned officers, who in turn formed their own internal chain of command under the leadership of a board of sergeants. The goal was to maintain order and discipline during the march without the leadership of any commissioned officers. Now that night, the officers reported a skyrocket being fired as a signal for the men to turn out and prepare to march. Lieutenant Francis White attempted to stop a group of soldiers. They shot him in the thigh and continued on their way. Captain Samuel Tolbert took a more aggressive approach, using his sword to attack a non-compliant soldier. And that soldier, Absalon Evans, responded by shooting Captain Tolbert. Another officer, Captain Adam Benton, attempted to stop a soldier and was shot in the gut. There were numerous accounts of attacks like this, with injuries reported on both sides. Captain Benton, however, would be the only officer to die from his wound. With the officers cowed, the soldiers seized their artillery and tried to encourage their more reluctant comrades to join them. According to some later accounts, some men, or even entire regiments, were forced at Bayonet Point to join the march. Soon, the Philadelphia Line was on the march toward Philadelphia. Now, General Anthony Wayne had heard the gunfire and left his 36th birthday party to rush to the camp. Along the way, he encountered some of the mutineers marching down the road. Wayne tried to appeal to the men, promising to raise their concerns himself. But the men had heard such promises before and were unconvinced that the general could do anything to relieve their condition. Soon, one of the men fired a shot over Wayne's head. In response, Wayne opened his coat and said, quote, 
If you mean to kill me, shoot me at once, here, in my breast. A spokesman for the group responded that they had nothing against General Wayne and wished him no harm, but that they were determined to bring their complaints directly to Philadelphia. By 2 a.m., more than 1,000 soldiers of the Pennsylvania line were in formation and marching away from camp. Wayne returned to his headquarters to write Washington about what had happened. Washington received the letter the following day and immediately wrote back to urge Wayne to stay with his troops and to urge them to stop and negotiate with him before reaching Philadelphia. Washington also warned Wayne not to use force against the mutineers for fear of driving them to the British in New York. By the evening of January 3rd, Wayne caught up with the army, now 1,500 strong, and camped at Middlebrook, New Jersey. Wayne got an agreement to meet with the Board of Sergeants to discuss the situation, but the army rose the following morning and continued their march anyway. By afternoon, the column reached Princeton and stopped again for the night. Washington was not the only officer who thought the mutiny might help the British in this fight. The British commander, General Henry Clinton, also received news of the mutiny about the same time as Washington. Clinton, of course, had spies throughout New Jersey, and they were able to bring him a report by January 3rd. The following day, Clinton deployed several agents to catch up with the mutineers. He promised all of them a full pardon and the protection of the British government, as well as promising to pay the men all of the back pay that they were owed for their continental service, with no obligation to serve in the British Army. Essentially, Clinton was going to reduce his enemy's forces by about one-fourth for the cost of a few thousand dollars. The same day Clinton deployed his agents, January 4th, Wayne received a list of demands from the Board of Sergeants. Their primary demand was that the three-year enlistments be honored and that no soldier be forced to serve beyond three years unless he re-enlisted voluntarily. The men also wanted their promised back pay and bounties, as well as clothing allowances. Essentially, they were asking for the government to keep promises that it had already made. The sergeants demanded that all of these demands be met within six days in full, or they would continue their march to Philadelphia. Wayne agreed that demands were reasonable, but also knew that he had no personal authority to grant these demands. Any agreement to these demands had to come from Congress or the Pennsylvania Assembly. Wayne proposed a meeting of sergeants with a representative of the Pennsylvania Council in Trenton. As the army awaited a response from Philadelphia, the British agents reached Princeton. Two New Jersey Tories, John Mason and James Ogden, delivered the British offer to the Board of Sergeants. The president of the Board of Sergeants, John Williams, immediately took the two men into custody and informed General Wayne. The mutineers wanted no suggestion that they were betraying their country or the cause for which they had been fighting for so many years. They merely wanted the government to fulfill the promises made to them when they enlisted. Back in Philadelphia, politicians took word of the approaching mutineers very seriously. The president of Pennsylvania, Joseph Reed, agreed to ride out to Trenton and negotiate with the men directly. Now, Reed is someone I've mentioned many times before. He was a Philadelphia lawyer before the war. When Washington received his first commission in 1775, Reed accompanied the new commander-in-chief to Boston and ended up serving as his first aide-de-camp. The two officers had a falling out, 
when Washington accidentally read a letter from General Charles Lee to Reed in late 1776, or it became clear that Reed supported Lee replacing Washington as commander-in-chief. Reed did stop serving as Washington's aide-de-camp, but he never formally resigned his commission, but he did leave active duty and went into politics. He served in the Continental Congress for a time before being elected president of Pennsylvania. Reed was considered a radical patriot. He was Benedict Arnold's main nemesis when Arnold served as military commander of Philadelphia, and Reed was the main man responsible for Arnold's court-martial. When Reed arrived in Princeton on Sunday, January 7th, he was surprised not to find an unruly mob of mutineers, but an organized military camp where the men met him with a ceremonial formation and salutes with the sergeants acting as regimental officers. The men presented their demands for discharges, back pay, and compensation for the depreciation of pay that was to have been given years earlier. Reed balked at the idea of a blanket discharge for all the soldiers. He countered that some of the men had actually re-enlisted and extended their enlistments voluntarily. He did agree, however, that those men who had served at least three years without agreeing to additional time should be discharged. He also demanded that the Loyalist agents who had come with General Clinton's offer be turned over for trial. The mutineers turned over the agents, who were tried and hanged the following day. Reed's demand that each enlistment be reviewed individually bought him at least a few weeks. The Army needed time to get all the enlistment records and check through them. But in the end, more than 1,300 soldiers were discharged. That's more than half of the entire Pennsylvania line. The remainder were redeployed to Pennsylvania, where they could engage in recruitment for a possible spring offensive. So by the end of January, the Pennsylvania line mutiny was over. Pennsylvania, however, was not the only line that felt frustrated by its treatment. One important concern that Washington had over negotiating with the mutineers was that it would only encourage more mutinies. And on that point, he was not wrong. The New Jersey line was in winter quarters at Pompton, New Jersey. The soldiers there had many of the same complaints and quickly became aware of the Pennsylvania mutiny. So they decided to march from their camp at Pompton to meet with the New Jersey commissioners at Chatham a few miles to the south. This march began on January 20th, while the Pennsylvania mutiny was still being resolved at Princeton. This group of New Jersey mutineers was much smaller than the Pennsylvania mutiny, only a few hundred soldiers. The mutineers met with the New Jersey commissioners at Chatham on January 23rd. The commissioners offered the men a pardon and updated the men on resolving their grievances. The men demanded discharges for those whose enlistments were complete. On this point, the commissioners refused to grant anything and demanded that the soldiers return to camp before anything could be resolved. The mutineers then marched back to their camp at Pompton. For Washington, however, this second mutiny confirmed his fears that the army might fall apart unless he made an example. Washington received news of the New Jersey mutiny on January 21st. He immediately ordered General Heath to assemble a force of five or six hundred New England Continentals to quash this mutiny. Once Heath had assembled the force, Washington showed up at West Point and gave command of this brigade to General Robert Howe. Recall that Howe was from North Carolina. He had once commanded the Southern Army 
but was sent up north after engaging in a duel with Vice President of South Carolina, Christopher Gadsden. Washington's orders to Howe called for him to put down the mutiny in a way that would serve as an example to others. He was not to negotiate with the mutineers at all, but to demand unconditional submission. If he succeeded in compelling their submission, Washington ordered Howe to try and hang several of the ringleaders immediately. Despite the fact that the New Jersey line had already marched back to their camp and were back where they were supposed to be, General Howe marched his men on a night march and surrounded the camp. By January 25th, Howe had most of his men in place, but sought to get an update on the situation. Officers reported that the men had returned to their barracks, but were still demanding their discharges, refusing to obey most orders, and had even threatened to run through one officer with a bayonet. Before dawn on the 26th, after surrounding the camp with infantry and artillery, Howe ordered the mutineers to turn out and assemble without their arms. The men complied. Howe then ordered the officers of the New Jersey line to identify those they believed to be the leaders of the mutiny. The officers identified 15 men who were brought forward. Next, Howe had the New Jersey officers identify three of those men for immediate court-martial. Those three men were brought forward, tried, and convicted. Howe then ordered the other 12 leading mutineers to be given firearms and ordered them to execute their three comrades. When the men understandably balked at executing their friends, Howe informed them that any man who failed to participate in the execution would be added to the list of men being executed. Sergeant David Gilmore was forced to his knees. On Howe's order, his comrades fired six shots at his head and six at his heart, killing the man instantly. Sergeant John Tuttle was next forced to kneel in the snow and suffered the same fate. Finally, Sergeant George Grant was forced to kneel, but at the last moment, with guns pointed at him, the court-martial issued a pardon and spared his life. Sergeant Grant and his would-be executioners broke down and sobbed openly. The New Jersey line returned to duty, and the mutinies, at least for 1781, came to an end. Washington continued to write letters to Congress and the states, pleading that they provide more food and supplies to prevent anything like this from happening again. Now, one might ask why the mutinies of the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines were treated so differently. Most of the Pennsylvania line was either discharged or permitted to return to camp without punishment, while two leaders of the New Jersey line were rather summarily executed and no real bargaining took place. Many experts have argued that the main reason for the different treatment was that the Continental Army decided it really had to take a firm hand after the second mutiny in order to prevent more regiments from doing the same. Now, that's certainly true, but officers also expressed similar concerns when they gave the Pennsylvania mutineers such a light touch. I think there are several factors that account for the change. One is that the first mutiny caught the commanders off guard. They needed time to assemble enough troops to put a stop to the mutiny. This would take time that they didn't have. Thus, persuasion and negotiation was all they really could do. Also, given the size of the first mutiny, over 1,500 men, it would have been difficult for Washington to confront them with an overwhelming force, especially without completely abandoning their defenses against a British attack from New York. 
Also, the mutineers' decision to turn over the British agents assured the leadership that these men were still loyal to the cause. By contrast, the New Jersey mutiny was much smaller, only about 300 men. This, along with the fact that Washington had already been calling in troops by the time this mutiny happened, allowed him to present an overwhelming force to crush the mutiny in a way that would discourage others. Washington needed to establish that the army was not a democracy and that disobedience to the chain of command would not be tolerated, regardless of the reasons. This response seemed to have its intended effect, and the rest of the winter remained quiet. Now, next week, we return to the South as Colonel Bannister Tarleton attacks the Continental Army at the Battle of Calpins. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seagam and TJ Walker. Thanks also to Mark Rogers for a generous one-time gift via Venmo. For those of you who don't want to become ongoing supporters, I very gratefully accept gifts via PayPal or Venmo, with links on my website. Now, this week's topic was a tough one for me. Despite the many atrocities we've seen in this war, I have to admit I found the execution of the New Jersey leaders by their own men to be particularly disturbing. Imagine having served faithfully for so many years, undergone so many deprivations, and being executed essentially for just complaining about it. I get that military discipline may require such measures, but I can't help but put myself in the position of one of these mutineer leaders. As he kneeled in the snow, awaiting execution by his comrades, what could he have thought about the cause for which he had fought, and of the leaders that seemed to throw away his life so easily? If he had been fighting for freedom and liberty, this really didn't look like it to him. Of course, leaders like Washington had to look at the bigger picture. Armies do require discipline. And this was not the first time Washington had ordered the execution of deserters. It certainly wouldn't be the last time either. All armies throughout history, to one degree or another, use the threat of force to keep their men in line. Keeping an army obedient is fundamental to the organization necessary to win the war. I guess if you are a military commander, this sometimes requires that the fighting men fear disobeying you. Interestingly, the one sergeant who was ordered executed and then who was pardoned at the last minute 
reportedly remained in service and fought at the Battle of Yorktown. Rather than continue to hold a grudge, the mutineers appeared to be contrite later and actually ashamed of their actions. Most of them went on to loyal service for the rest of the war. I should also mention that British General Clinton was not dissuaded by the execution of the two agents that he sent to the Pennsylvania line. He sent more agents to contact the New Jersey line with a similar offer. Clinton was not dissuaded by the executions of the earlier agents, but the agents he sent to the second line were. It was reported that the agents skulked around the edge of camp, but never made actual contact with the New Jersey mutineers. If you want to read more in detail about these mutinies, my book recommendation this week is called Rebellion in the Ranks, Mutinies of the American Revolution by John Nagy. Much of this book focuses on the mutiny of the Pennsylvania line, and that topic alone takes up nearly a third of the book's main text, which is about 300 pages. This was the first of several American Revolution books that Nagy wrote. He was a former president of the American Revolution Roundtable of Philadelphia. He also apparently lived within a few minutes of where I live in southern New Jersey. Unfortunately, I never had the privilege to meet him. He passed away about a year before I began this podcast. But if you want to learn more about this week's topic, Rebellion in the Ranks is the best book that I've found. If you don't want a whole book on this topic, but you do want to learn a little more, my online recommendations are two articles from the Online Journal of the American Revolution. One covers the mutiny of the Pennsylvania line. The other covers the mutiny of the New Jersey line. Both of these articles were written by Michael Shellhammer and published in 2014. They're, of course, available online, and I've included links to them on my blog and website. I'll also note that I have a rather large number of links this week on my blog, which go to the considerable correspondence that took place over these mutinies. These links are all from founders.archive.gov, which is part of the National Archives. Together, I think these letters are a very interesting read. Those links are all at the bottom of my blog for this episode, which of course you can find at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Before I get to this week's question, I have to note that this week's episode marks my sixth anniversary since starting the American Revolution podcast. As has been my tradition during these anniversary episodes, I want to give a few quick statistics about my podcast and our milestones. The podcast currently has just over five and a half million downloads since I first released episode number one six years ago. I can't tell you how gratifying it has been that so many people have enjoyed this podcast. The fact that so many people are interested in this topic and are even willing to listen to me drone on about it for Lord knows how many hours over all this time, I really do appreciate it. It really does make me happy that so many people do enjoy it. Like last year, New York has the highest number of downloads of all 50 states. California is in second place for the last year, although I will note that in recent months, Pennsylvania has pushed past the much larger California, putting California into third place. Now, when we factor in population, of course, the big states don't have that advantage. D.C., once again, has the largest number of downloads per person, but until D.C. gets statehood, the largest state downloads per person is Vermont for the second year in a row, followed by Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. As I said, I have listeners in all 50 states. 
but in terms of total downloads, South Dakota comes in last, and when we look at downloads by population, Hawaii once again takes last place. Worldwide, it's not surprising that more than 90% of my listeners come from the U.S. Canada is the next largest, followed by Australia and then the U.K. Of non-English-speaking countries, Germany comes out on top. There are a few countries, mostly in Central Africa, with zero downloads. But the big disappointment for me again this year is China, with only two downloads in the entire last year. I suspect the podcast might be blocked in China, because of security concerns about spreading the idea of overthrowing a tyrannical government. Again, though, thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. I very much appreciate your interest in the American Revolution generally, and my podcast specifically. My question this week asks, wasn't George Washington actually more English than the German George III? Was this issue that the American colonists saw themselves as Englishmen being ruled over by non-English people. Well, I think one of the problems of defining nationality is that ancestors pretty much always come from somewhere else if you go back far enough. Now, it is true that George I and George II were both from Germany, had German wives, and barely spoke English. George I was George III's great-grandfather, George II was his grandfather, And, of course, George III's father, who would have been next in line, died before George II did, so we skipped a generation to George III. But the fact that kings were not English was really kind of the norm in Britain. For centuries, most monarchs were either born abroad, this includes the German states, France, the Netherlands, or they were descended from someone who was. And no one really seemed to have a problem with any of that. George III was actually more English than monarchs had been in quite some time. He was raised in Britain, and he spoke English as his first language. While he had many Germanic ancestors, he got his gig as king because he had bloodlines that went back to other rulers of England for many centuries. Consider also that England itself gets its name from warriors who captured a large chunk of the island after traveling from Anglum, which is in today's modern Germany. So England's history has a long tradition of German rule. George Washington's ancestors did come from England, where his family had lived for centuries, but before that, Washington's family is believed to have come from Normandy and Scandinavia. Probably of greater significance in judging George Washington's Englishness was the fact that Washington had never stepped foot in England in his entire life, and his family had already lived in Virginia for several generations. The king's national heritage was never an issue in the American Revolution. In fact, initially colonists had tried to get the king to take their side against Parliament. It was only after the king sided with Parliament that the colonists decided to reject the king entirely. It was the king's actions, not his ancestry, that led to independence. If you have a question you'd like me to answer please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white. 
yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.